good heavens, Wayne. It is another podcast. We are spending some time uh, in the last podcast and in this podcast talking about stuff that is like out there, four billion miles away from the sun. Right. And uh, in the last podcast, we mentioned this strange little object called Ultima Thule, or Ultima Thule, or I think it's Thule. Thule or something yeah. like that. Uh, we're killing the pronunciation. I apologize to all you particular people out there who are offended by mispronouncing space things, but uh, we're just going to go with Thule. Or <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so forgive us ahead of time. But um, one of the things we're going to talk about today, or primarily the thing we're going to talk about, is what's about a half a billion miles away from Pluto. <clears throat> it's like, what? what's out there beyond the edge? What is over the edge? That's right. Um, and so I think it would be good to at least... Give us a uh, to start off by talking about what Ultima Thule is. What where does that word come from, and uh, uh, why why did it get named this? What well the name uh, I looked I looked it up Thule Ultima Thule. Um, actually, it's in the Oxford English Dictionary. I right. have uh, I own a copy of the micro version which is like you need a magnifying glass to see all the words it's a giant book <laughs> it was on sale for like a hundred dollars a used but i got a microscope to go along with it. it's pretty cool okay but the oed the oxford english dictionary uh has the definition of ultima Thule as quote as the type of extreme limit of travel and discovery the highest or uttermost point or degree attained or attainable and the OED goes on to define the term as it first appeared in ancient Greece. And the dictionary says, quote, The ancient Greek and Latin name, first found in Polybius's account of the voyage of Pythias, for a land six days sail north of Britain, which he supposed to be the most northerly region in <laughs> the world, end quote. Right. So you get the idea that Ultima Thule is like the ultimate destination. It's as far north in the ancient world as far north as you could go. And so for us, as we're investigating the edge of the universe, it seemed like a fitting name, the edge of the universe, the edge of the solar system, it seemed like a fitting name to describe this really strange object that's way out there. Right. So uh, for a long time, Dan, uh, scientists thought that Pluto was about the edge or about the limit. There wasn't much out there beyond Pluto. And uh, now we know there's a lot of objects out there. Mm-hmm. Maybe hundreds of thousands. We're, we're not sure, but it, there's a few hundred objects that we know of that we actually know the orbits of, right? Of, that are beyond Pluto in, in that region. They're called trans-Neptunian objects. Trans-Neptunian objects, or TNOs. TNOs. The old term for them was Kuiper Belt objects, but uh, the trans-Neptunian uh, term is is kind of a, a, a bigger region than. Kuiper Belt. Okay. Anyway, TNO is the new term for it. Uh, so, Ultima Thule is actually an object that was discovered on the way to Pluto. Oh, okay. So, the the New Horizons mission we talked about in our last podcast, while they were on the way to Pluto, they wanted to find an object beyond Pluto so that after the Pluto flyby, they could fly by another object. Okay, so the plan was to discover something. Yes. Um, but they had to do it in route because it was so far away. Right. It was so far, and they had to they had to find something that is in, was in the right direction so that they could get there after Pluto. It, it couldn't be very far away. They, they can't change the the path of the spacecraft too much. 
So what they had to basically aim at Ultima Thule when they did the Pluto flyby. They had to do the fl- Pluto flyby so that it would take them to the other object hmm. beyond it. And, and this is kind of like if you're playing pool, Dan, and you're trying to do a bank shot. <laughs> if you ever tried to do a bank shot, it's very hard. It is. To hit that third ball. To hit the third ball after uh, and, hitting off the bank. That's, that's like what NASA had to do to get the okay. Ultima Thule. And, it, and it's, so it turned out to be quite an extraordinary thing. It was uh, the beginning of this year where they had actually uh, finally got a visual on it. Is that correct? That it? Yeah, it was after... Uh, Shortly after the uh, January uh, one of uh, 2019, yeah, I have a New York Times article here. Part of it, it's it said that uh, after midnight on the New Year, um, there was a countdown uh, at NASA as the New Horizons approached what they called the icy world, nicknamed Ultima Thule, uh, which they said uh, lies some half a billion to a billion miles farther from the sun than Pluto. And, but this is what's interesting, they had made this quote, they believed, the scientists I'm assuming, that Pluto, uh, that Ultima Thule could hold clues to the formation of the solar system as we know it. So there's oftentimes a a little bit of hyperbole maybe about what this object might tell us about the solar system. But it's interesting because what we saw kind of, shook up people's expectations, right? Yes. In fact, uh, we're now now in February 2019, Mm -hmm. if we do this. Um, In January, the pictures that were put out about Ultima Thule turned out to be partly wrong. See, what they did was they they took pictures from one angle to to get this object at the closest approach to it mm-hmm. and during the flyby and then they took more pictures from a different another angle so the first later. picture the first picture i want to talk set up what the first picture looked like it looked like two spherical objects right stuck together right so they were describing it like a snowman yes Only what you're talking about is uh probably a very icy object and uh it looks like two objects collided and stuck together stuck together and it looked at first the first images looked like they were small little spheroids that had yeah. had crashed into each other so yeah. how did this change what did so we this end up changed see you got to think about how long it takes them to get the data so when they are at pluto it took about four and a half hours for the uh, radio signals to make it to earth by the time they got the ultima Thule, it takes about six hours mm. and it takes uh, many hours for all of the data on uh, Ultima Thule to be sent back to Earth. And again, we talked about on the last podcast what data is, right? Something right. given. Something given. Yes. And so now, and so, um, but when they do the flyby, they want to show a picture right away, right? Because everybody wants to see this thing. We've, mm-hmm. never, we've never seen an object out there before. It's way out there. Yeah. And uh, so... After the initial flyby, they take a second image of it from a different angle. And when they look at it from another angle, they could see certain stars behind it that they thought they, w- they thought would be blocked by it. So hmm. it shows that the, the object was actually kind of flat oh. instead of being like a round ball. It's sort of like a, a disc, a 
two discs stuck together. So you my, said my my ridiculous analogy is: <laughs> imagine you're at McDonald's having a uh, egg McMuffin and a pancake, and you 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 take the pancake and the egg McMuffin and you stick them together by the edge. Yeah, <laughs> they're stuck together on the edge. That's a lot like. Yeah, what Ultima Thule looks like. So there's one little small round disc at the top, and there's a larger plate-like disc at the pancake-sized disc. Right. And, and they they connected. Uh, at, well, you know, it's either did they collide and stick, or was this uh, shaped and formed by its tumbling through the the heavens? Well, I, I don't think we ultimately know. Uh, but if they collided uh, at a low velocity, it's possible they might stick together, stick and freeze. Ices can do this when you when they collide; they can melt just a little tiny bit of it, and mm-hmm. then it free refreezes really rapidly in the cold of space and so they can sort of melt and refreeze and they get stuck so there's a possibility there was some kind of moisture on these things we're doing we but don't... the problem the odd thing is that they're both like disc shaped mm. so how, how in the world would they get stuck together on the edge on the edges it almost makes you think that and i saw the flat pictures not but a couple of days ago uh myself and it makes you instantly the question is if they collided what a what a collision that that, yeah. that they didn't crack or break apart, and then right. they stuck together on a very. If you think about putting two plates together, the actual parts that touch where the two plates touch is not much surface area at all. If right. you just bring two flat discs together, there's not a whole lot of surface area that's making contact. So this is a really very fragile object. Yeah, which yeah. makes you. It, it did did it did it form? Was it shaped? You know, geologically, we say geologically, or you know, was it shaped like that? as one object and then just got cut up by the way it was spinning or, you know, did they come together? Um, It's it's a puzzle. Now, here's a a good question. I don't know if you know the answer to this. I actually don't, uh, except that, are we calling this a trans-Newtonian? Trans-Newton? It's a trans-Neptunian. Neptunian. Trans-Neptunian object. I say Newtonian. It's Neptunian. Um, It brings to mind what uh, William Herschel went through when they discovered uh, in in the early 1800s, 1801, 1802, they had discovered Pallas and Ceres, or Circes. Um, oh, the, that's two of the asteroids. The asteroids. Pallas and, and Ceres. Ceres was the yeah. other one. And uh, they didn't have a name for these things. They right. thought they were planets. Right. But Herschel and his sister Caroline could observe these things at a high resolution back then. And so this was 1801. And he was writing uh, to a friend of his in 1802 uh, asking for help on what to call. Yeah these things and he came up with the word star like which in greek translates to asteroid okay asteroid so herschel was the one that came up with the okay. term asteroids so asteroid means star like thing star like thing not quite a star <laughs> yeah it's not right. big enough <laughs> right so we've come up with these uh, interesting terms for things and there's there's uh, certain groups of objects out in this area beyond pluto mm-hmm. like pluto has objects right around its orbit that are called plutinos now what's yeah plutinos that's a funny name yeah and uh in our last podcast you had read the definition of planet and what we know of ultima thule actually it has a couple of characteristics um it doesn't have anything around it right it goes in a mostly circular orbit 
And uh, it's is it in our solar system? You know, so <laughs> yeah, but it's not round. It's not. It's, it's not it's a not, spherical it's object. It's not spherical object. So there, it doesn't meet the definition because of it not being spherical. But you see, there are there are similarities yes. involved in there, and I think right. there's there's two ways to do astronomy. You can look at things that are similar and try to explain the differences, or you can look at the differences and try to explain why they're similar. And I think there's a there's an extrapolation factor where we're trying to describe these things. And what if we find more trans Neptunian objects that, uh, how, you know, are the, right now, all they're defining these things as are things that are beyond Neptune. Is that correct? Or are there are other characteristics? Um, there are some other characteristics because some of them are kind of randomly scattered, it seems like. Hmm. And some of the objects beyond Pluto are, are actually in orbit resonances with Neptune. Okay. And so... Th- what that, is that exactly? That means that there's a special timing in their distance... That makes them kind of uh, uh, they, 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 their orbital period is a small integer multiple of Neptune's in some way. So mm. that's, so like when when if Neptune goes around the sun seven times, one of them might go around the sun eight times. Okay, that would be a resonance. And if so there's seven a... and eight. They come around the same side of the sun in a in a frequent way. And I know that because of uh, the timing. I don't know if we mentioned it in the last podcast, but Neptune and Pluto has a 3 to 1 resonance, right? For every 3 laps 3 to 2. 3 to 2. For every 3 laps Neptune does, uh yeah. Pluto does too. Right. So that's what a resonance is. That's really cool. Right. So and there's a lot of quite a few objects out there beyond Pluto that are in resonances with Neptune. Wow. So Neptune influences these objects. So is there do you think and we're on this subject, and we talked about it a little bit. Do you think there's a larger planet beyond the TNOs? This has been brought up every few years, it seems like. <laughs> uh, scientists have looked and looked for a long time, and when back when in the 1930s, when they were uh, when, around the time that Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto, they were beginning to look for it then. Uh huh. Because okay, there are things that kind of tweak the orbit of Neptune in little ways and they've kind of thought well maybe there's another object that makes the orbit of Neptune get nudged a little now and then but they never really found evidence of another planet out there they've, they've really tried hard to find one yeah Mr. Uh, Tumbaugh by the way he lived to be 90 um, mm-hmm. he lived in New Mexico he died in 1997 um, he wrote a letter and he said this uh, shortly before his death he said Pluto started out as the ninth planet a supported uh, a supported fulfillment of Percival Lowell's prediction of Planet X. So part mm-hmm. of the reason we discovered Pluto was because we were hunting for this Planet X. Uh, but uh, Tumbaugh goes on to say, let's simply retain Pluto as the ninth major planet. After all, there is no Planet X. And he goes on to say this. For 14 years, I combed two-thirds of the entire sky down to 17th magnitude, mm-hmm. and no more planets showed up. I did the job thoroughly and correctly, Pluto was your last chance for a major planet. Right. Well, that's a pretty good uh, <laughs> word there from him. But, but today, Dan, they can see objects down to about 22nd or 24th magnitude. Right. The magnitude. And let me <clears throat> briefly explain. Magnitude is just uh, how something appears to us, the brightness of something. Right. Um, 
and the 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 so the larger the number if something is 17th magnitude that's very dim but if it's something is a 22nd or a 23rd magnitude that's very dim the brighter the stars if you get into negative numbers if you say like a magnitude of a star is negative one or negative two that's super bright right and these are, this is a logarithmic scale yes. so if you go from 17th magnitude to 18th you're increasing that's a it. big difference it's a big jump so 18th is a lot uh, fainter than 17. Right. And so the problem with finding planets when you're dealing with magnitudes is that planets do not shine their own light. Right. They reflect the light of the sun. So the farther back a planet would be, it would have to have some super reflective material or be right. super big, or we'd have to have super sensitive equipment to be able to discover if there's something beyond. And right now we just don't have the technology to find something. Um, if they're Pluto size, they're going to be beyond the realm of our ability to see them. So we can't just turn the Hubble Space Telescope on that deep spot of sky because planets don't generate their own light. Right, but we can see farther than Tombaugh did. Yeah, we can. And uh, we know there's objects out there. There's probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of objects out there. Mm. But they're, they're small, uh, icy objects. But because we know, here's here's the thing I think that makes a larger planet a difficult hypothesis. There are so many smaller objects out there that we know of that we can see mm-hmm. that don't seem to be affected by the gravitation of what would be a larger planet. So if there was a larger planet out there, these all these small little objects would be affected by the gravity of something like a Jupiter or a Saturn or a Uranus, correct? Yes, but that very thing is something scientists have debated a lot. And even recently there were studies of this in our recent articles in hmm. the last few months about this. So scientists still debate this now and then. And, uh, you know, we're, there could always be surprises out there we don't know. Sure. But, but uh, there's no, um, there's nothing that they can't explain by the small objects. Yeah. In other words, a lot of small objects could have effects that are similar to a one bigger object. I hate to even bring this up, but I see it every time you hear some planetary some news of a planet is discovered or some some rumor is put out there that you will see on YouTube and social media sometimes a few fringe people will bring up occasionally planet Nibiru. Mm-hmm. Which is uh well, I don't even want to get into it, but I just all this to say that that there's absolutely no hard physical scientific evidence that anything like what is ever being suggested for a planet in the bureau could even possibly remotely exist. Right. And and even if there were a planet out there, it's not hard, uh, some kind of harbinger of doom on the earth. No. It doesn't predict anything for what's no. going to happen to us. The the people that put this out there are not so much concerned about good science as they are about making a name for themselves. And so you can just put to bed the nonsense of Nibiru if if you ever hear about that. It's just not. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the ideas in astrology, really. Yeah, it's it's more about hey, look look at all the secret knowledge that I, it's kind of like a Gnosticism, Wayne, in a sense. Look at all the secret knowledge I've discovered. I'm the right. only one who knows it. Mm-hmm. And uh, generally, uh, that's not a good thing if one lone individual on a YouTube channel thinks he's discovered everything that nobody else has. It's usually probably a. A good idea to stay away from that. So I just wanted to put Nibiru to rest. It doesn't right. exist behind the sun. It's not hiding out in the yeah, nether worlds of our galaxy. No evidence for anything there's like that. There's nothing. Now, there are there are planets we do know uh, of what they call rogue planets. There are planets out there we have discovered that have no star. Yeah. Um, but if there was such a one roaming into our solar system, it would be immediately detectable, especially given its size, how it would disrupt the orbital periods of all the other planets that we know of. Right. Those things are, those objects are hard to find. Mm-hmm. 
and they tend to be very dark. And usually when when they're discovering those, it's because they have an effect on some other planet or star that they're watching. Yeah. Even though they're not... It's possible for a star that has multiple planets to eject one of them. Mm. Or it could have... You could have, say, three stars orbiting each other. It's possible one star could be ejected from the system. Got it. Because it comes too close to one of the big ones. Or so something. planets can exist without a parent sun going around it. Yeah. It could have been thrown out of the system. Um, one kind of ponderable question I wanted to bring up, and maybe we can think about it a little bit, is I talk to, and you know this, I talk to a lot of skeptics and atheists. It's one of the reasons that we wrote, I wanted to write our book, is that here are intelligent Christians talking about science and astronomy in a good way. Um, but one of the questions that always comes up is the question of meaning and purpose when it comes to the cosmos. Like if you say, why is the cosmos here? Why is there something rather than nothing? A lot of times... I like the title of our book, What is the Story of the Cosmos? What is the Story of the Cosmos? And um, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson wrote a book called The Pluto Files. We were discussing that in our last podcast. Uh, But Dr. Tyson, I think he currently still is, the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Right, Uh uh-huh. And uh, he was, in the Pluto Files book, he, he outlines kind of what went into the design uh, of the new planetarium that they were, they were designing and building in the late 1990s. And he says this. He says, in the old days, a planetarium visit would target the sky show. You'd go in, you'd see the exhibits that lined the, feed, the feeder corridors were what occupied your idle time uh, while you're waiting for the show to start. By the late 20th century, however, astrophysicists had compiled much more than a planetarium show's worth of information, there's the data again, right, about the universe. So, Dr. Tyson says, our task was not to facelift the existing facility, but to invent something entirely new. Besides designing and acquiring the -the state-of-the-art technology to deliver what we now call space shows, we were constructing a unique and arresting architectural facility that would offer ample three-dimensional exhibit spaces suitable for telling cosmic stories on a grand scale. <laughs> and so when I talk to people about the universe, especially skeptics, it does boil down to the question of what is the right, what is the true story of the universe? What does it mean? And uh, recently I was dialoguing with a gentleman on Twitter about the meaning of the cosmos and he shot back and said well why do you even have to ask that question that's not a question that we can answer that that there's no sense to to answering that question which is really a materialistic objection to say that there's no meaning Uh, but that seems to betray everything that we intuitively know about the universe How, how could you look at something like that and just say well it's just there right it in it 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 seems to invite us to investigate why would a two pizza shaped object attract such attention of astronomers on earth why would we care about rocks floating in space but you know they spent 700 million i think was the final price tag on new horizons right we want to discover we spent all that those millions of dollars to discover these objects which says to me wayne like if i were to ask you to give me 700 million dollars for a project you're going to want to know why sure and I think that's that's a legitimate question that that the, the the just the expenditure in NASA and the ESA and all the organizations just the expenditure alone I think tells us something about the value and the purpose 
right. the cosmos. Do you agree? Yes. And uh, it's obviously uh, very meaningful to the people of NASA that were involved in this. And uh, there's stories. Uh, uh, there was a, the Planetary Science Radio, the Planetary Society Radio or podcast program mm-hmm. I was listening to. And they were telling how NASA people bring their families and they'll stay up all night with their families to watch what's going to happen with the spacecraft. That's fantastic. And uh, people will travel to to um, wherever this uh, NASA facility is to, to see this and see what happens. And uh, so it means a lot to people to be involved in this discovery. And I'm all for discovery and what and NASA does. Let's push the limits of what we've ever seen. Let's keep going. Let's see what's out there. Yeah. And, but let's be careful about our conclusions and how we look at this because we have uh we have figured out these physical laws about the universe so that we can get meaning out of this and put this to work as it were we can mm-hmm. put the laws of the universe to work to serve mankind with science and to explore yeah and why does exploration mean something to us if it just it kind of came about by chance and just natural processes and forces. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that important to us? There's a double-edged sword for, for a purely naturalistic interpretation of the universe. At the one hand, they want to affirm the wonder and mm-hmm. the beauty mm-hmm. and the awe, and the purpose and the meaning that it gives to the lives of people who study these things. Mm-hmm. But from a purely materialistic or a naturalistic uh, worldview, without God. Uh, there's no explanation for why the universe is intelligent, why it's beautiful, why mathematics works, right. why we can know so much about the universe and so much of the things that are so far away from us. Are, why we get so excited when we discover it. We talked about last podcast about you can go and watch YouTube videos of NASA and the ESA and all these people that are part of these wonderful missions cheering and shouting and hugging and crying right. when their probe lands or when the pictures come back and right. people's breaths are taken and it's a stunning it's it's like it's kind of like a it's it's just amazing it, it, yeah. as, as isaiah says shout for joy oh heavens right that's, that's right um yeah. and so i i, I kind of i, I i'm not it, it just seems counterintuitive to the whole purpose of science counterintuitive to the whole purpose of who we are as human beings to just look at something like the cosmos and go oh there's no answer to the question of why that's here we just stop at it's like the Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the curtain. Stop asking questions about Don't look the ma- behind the curtain. Don't look yeah. behind the green curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the exactly. curtain. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and and in a lot of ways if uh, but that, that just that just shuts down science. Right. Yeah, I mean that just shuts down inquiry and that's just not it's in the very fiber of our being. It's like little kids. Why, mom? Why, dad? Yes. You know, and they, until you get to the end of that, but that's that's our nature uh, to discover and to know things. And, uh, yeah, I th- to look at it uh, in a materialistic way is like telling the child there is no why. Yeah, or just threatening them well, to stop be, asking dumb questions. There may be a why. It may be there for us to consider the maker who, who put it there. Well, it, it seems intrinsically built into us to explore. That's just in our nature to do that. And to, to say that, oh, you can't explore... Um, is a um, it's, it just 
counterintuitive yes. to, to, to the way that we've been created, the way the solar system, the, the universe, everything that we we have such a wonderful spot in the Orion arm of the of the Milky Way galaxy to be able to see mm-hmm. as deeply as we can see into the universe. Is uh, Melissa Kane Travis in the last couple of podcasts ago? I interviewed her. I love her phrase that the the universe has a deep intelligibility to it. Right. Uh, mathematics. We should mm-hmm. not have been able to predict. Uh, the existence of mathematics and its usefulness in in helping us to understand uh, what it is we're looking at. I think it, it is a reflection of the language of of God Himself. Right, and uh, you know we could have been in a solar system that's very different from ours, or like the, maybe there wouldn't be a, a, an object like Pluto or small objects out there. Maybe there wouldn't be any planets, and we wouldn't we couldn't even live uh, in, in in a solar system. That's, um, that's, there's lots of solar systems like that. In one of the Psalms, it's interesting that uh, Psalm 102 begins with, uh, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to thee. Do not hide thy face from me in the day of my distress. Incline thy ear to me, and in the day when I call, answer me quickly. And then at the latter part of the Psalm, what does he end up reflecting upon? God of old founding the earth, and the heavens are the work of of thy hands Mm. even they will perish but thou dost endure and all of them will wear out like a garment and so he's reflecting he's distressed but then part of his reflection is lord you created the cosmos you created the heavens you created the earth why should i be in despair you will rescue me you hear my voice uh which is so totally different from a materialistic cosmos where carl sagan and neil degrasse tyson have said repeatedly in the things that they write and speak about that there's there's no help in the cosmos the cosmos doesn't care about us that it's all death and destruction and and crashing and explosions and thermonuclear dangers and seething and it's just a terrible waste place of of you know but then they'll turn around and say it's all beautiful and wonderful and we should explore it and it should give us meaning yeah and those two things don't really they jive. don't go together if if the cosmos doesn't care about me and it's depressing and it's full of death and destruction and thermonuclear wasting uh, how can I, why should I derive, Why should I be motivated to go and find out about it? Right. If if the cosmos has just demoted me to a smudge, why should I be, like, rejoicing? But I think that's where the gospel comes in and says, yeah, we are, we are sinful and broken, but Jesus, the, the one who created the whole thing, uh, doesn't leave us in that condition. He does come right. t- to save us. He so does come to help us. In the, From the Bible, it, you know, the Bible says that we can have a, a child father kind of relationship with God, who is the creator of the universe. So what a privilege we have. Yeah. And we can have a, a child father relationship with the infinite creator of the universe. Yeah. There's a scene, uh, I love this, of course, in David when he's reflecting on the Psalms, or reflecting in the Psalms about the universe. He says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Mm. You know, and he says, When I consider the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars that you have created, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And then later in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is in Nazareth. He, he comes to the house of Peter's mother-in-law, who has a fever. She's laying in the sickbed. Mm. And the very hands and fingers that created the sun, moon, and the stars in the universe lift Peter's mother-in-law out of bed and cure her of her fever. Right. And that's, to me, that's amazing that the creator of the universe will come in under our roofs, come into our synagogues, come into our churches, come into our places where we dwell, in our cars, in our houses, in our everyday lives, that the creator of the universe is there with us, helping us, as he says in Isaiah, I will take you by the hand, fear not, I will help you, Uh, you know, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. 
So, so the, the creator is Jesus, the one who made all of this, is not an impersonal deity with his arms crossed sitting on a throne, distant and aloof and uncaring. Right. Um, you know, space telescopes weren't designed to find the throne room. And when a scientist says there's no room for God in the universe, we've explained everything without him. Well, that assumes your scientific knowledge and telescopes and microscopes can can detect God. Yeah. You know, if, if you're saying that they can't find him, you're assuming that they could detect him to begin with. But God is not distant. Um, God is right there. I mean, he's he's right there, as Paul says in Acts 17. Uh, he is closer to us. Um, the, he's there to help us in no matter what kind of need we are in. Right. Yeah, is scientists bring their assumptions to their their data, <laughs> their discoveries and their facts. It's, there's more than one way of looking at, the, at things. Yeah, you don't have to look at it in the materialistic way. You can look at it from a more meaningful way. Yeah, from a Christian point. point right. Of view. I mean, Pluto or Ultima Thule <clears throat> doesn't tell you how to interpret them. Right. You know, I mean, you look to this rock. That's way out there beyond Pluto, and you think, oh, this might give us some clues as to how the solar system formed, maybe. But if you're looking for meaning and purpose and origin, uh, a, a space rock is not going to ultimately tell you any of that, really. But the rock that we look to, the real rock that we look to, the rock who made all the rocks is Jesus. Right. As Paul said, he is the rock. The, he made the order that we discovered. Yes, he is the bright and morning star. He is the rock, as Paul says. He is... Uh, the son of righteousness. Um, he is the light of the world. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool that the creator of the universe uh, cares about us enough, each individually, to help us in our time of, of need. And so, as Isaiah said, as we said in the last podcast, rejoice, O heavens, for God has spread out the heavens by himself. You know, he didn't consult with any other demigods <laughs> or any other man and how to make the universe. He did it by himself, by his outstretched arm and right hand. And good heavens, we get to discover it. Yes. There's still more out there, Dan. Right. There's still more we haven't seen. Right. So we haven't discovered. We haven't. And so, you know, you might think yourself a, a, a just a, a lay person who's like, what do I do? Well, look at Clyde Tumball, right, from the last podcast. He was a wheat farmer. He was 24 years old. Yeah. Lived out in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, and made some drawings of what he saw in the universe sent him to a to an observatory in arizona and next thing you know he's got a job and his name goes into the history books because he found a little tiny dot of light in a <laughs> in a blink comparator yes <laughs> i mean I, you just right. never know uh and that's that's the one he took thing. the time to look at the details and, yeah and really figure right. it out and it reminds me of the scripture where jesus says that he ascended on high and led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. To men yes. Yeah, datum, something given, yes, right? Something the, given. The heavens right. are filled with his gifts. And so anybody, especially now in this day and age when you have the internet, anybody can make a discovery. Anybody can uh, can 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 get into uh, appreciating the beauty and how the heavens remind us of the glory of God and his faithfulness to us. That's right. Yes. So, so uh, and praise God. Amen. And before we go, let's briefly talk about our book which is coming out in July. Wayne, what is this all about? Yeah, we have a book that uh, I'm a co-author. Dan is one of the editors, and the other editor is a man named Paul Gould. Yes. Uh, and it's going to come out in uh, July of uh, yeah. 2019. Right. The same day Apollo 11 launched toward the moon. We are, we are launching our book on July 16th, 2019, which is the same day, 50 years ago, that Apollo 11 launched to the moon so it's kind of cool right and there's a whole variety of authors in this some of them are actual astronomers and some not uh, I write a chapter that's kind of a historical and biographical 
look at two astronomers from the 1500s and 1600s, mm-hmm. uh, Tycho Brahe and Johann Kepler, and how they got meaning, how they what they believe the meaning of what their work was in astronomy. And it's a great story you tell, too, because yeah. it's uh, it shows how God uses just the most bizarre situations and circumstances to bring about discovery. Yeah, they, they, God let them to come together and work together when it was kind of difficult for them to work together. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it's kind of, you think of it this way. What if you told a college student, Dan, they start going to college and they're smart and they're, they're, they're going to study engineering or something and you give them a challenge in college. I want you to figure out the orbits of the planets and you can't use a telescope. <laughs> How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? You've got to figure out the orbits of the planets and calculate it so you can predict where to look in the sky for a planet and you can't use a telescope to do it. No. This is what you, Tycho Brahe, Johan Kepler did. And I think it's the the wonderful part about the story you make a point about uh, Tycho, I've always called him Tycho, um, has, uh, he was a good observer mm-hmm. and Kepler had bad eyesight, didn't do any observing, he did math, he crunched right. numbers. So you right. had you had Tycho's incredible observational skills. Yeah. Coupled with Kepler who had eye problems doing all the math. Right. It took both of them and both sides of this, the observational part and the theoretical part. Uh, Tycho was the uh observationalist and mm-hmm. and uh, Kepler was the theoretician. Yeah. And it took both to figure it out. So that's a great chapter in the book. We've got uh uh like you said we have a couple of astronomers. We have a Paul's a philosopher. Mm-hmm. So the philosophical implications of of a created versus a non-created universe. And then we have uh the Christian philosopher Dr. William Lane Craig talking about uh God creating out of nothing. And comparing that to how some secular astronomers and cosmologists are arguing maybe that uh, the universe came from nothing without God. So Dr. Craig goes into that. Uh, We have Dr. Michael Ward, who's my thesis advisor, talking about C.S. Lewis and the term space. The outer, where did we get the word space? How did we go from heavens to the word space? Michael Ward does a great job of that. Um, And then we have uh, Dr. Bradstreet talking about binary stars. We have uh, Melissa Kane Travis talking about the mathematics in the universe. And uh, we have Luke Barnes. I'm excited about Luke, uh, along with Alan Hainline, talking about uh, some of the finely tuned aspects of our universe. And it's a, it's a wonderful, we have Brother Guy Consolmagno from the Vatican talking about asteroids and meteors. Yes. Um, it's just a really neat mix of people talking about what they enjoy most about the universe. Yeah, these, these are authors of... You might say they're different flavors of believers. Yeah. And uh, they they draw meaning from astronomy in different ways. Yeah. It's different examples of what does astronomy mean to people. And that's what I, Paul and I were trying to make sure we captured was allow everybody's voice to be what they wanted without telling them mm-hmm. anything other than basically write an essay about how you see the glory of God in the universe. Mm-hmm. And we just let them talk about uh, the way they saw things. And we don't force... We don't, we don't force a particular interpretation. We let everybody offer their interpretation, and every chapter can send you down uh, a journey of exploration on your own. You can find the voice that you agree with, the voice that you like. But one thing that we do have in common, well, two things. One, we, believe that we all believe, Catholics and Protestants in the book, that the heavens declare the glory of God. Mm-hmm. I love how we were able to all come together from different backgrounds, as you say, different flavors. 
and that, that we would all affirm the deity and the resurrection of Jesus. So, so here are people that we are bringing together what we can agree upon to write a book to demonstrate that Christians do agree on things, both in the, in the heavens and on the earth. And here's a good little example of how Christians can come together, literally for the glory of God. That's what I like about it. Right, and uh, it's different perspectives, but uh, uh, there's different angles on uh, how faith relates to science. Yeah. And I I like Guy Consolmagno's comments about what faith means. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great chapter. You'd be surprised. Uh, He has some good insights in there. So uh, we hope that uh, you will enjoy the book. It's coming out this July. You can pre-order it on Amazon right now. And actually, uh, just recently, we added uh, a look inside feature, or Amazon did. Uh, The book is, uh, as we speak, the book is being printed or soon will be printed. We should be getting some promotional copies here in the next couple of months. But it will be out on shelves and available for reading on the 16th of July. And we hope and pray that it will become a New York Times bestseller. (laughs) Yeah, so, so look for The Story of the Cosmos by Dan Daniel Ray and uh, Paul Gould. Coming out this July 2019. And so, Wayne, I think that'll do it. This is a pretty good episode about uh, the mysteries that lie out beyond the solar system that we know of. And maybe some of our listeners will uh, take up the mantra of looking out beyond the things we can see. And someone out there will be in the next Clyde Tumbaugh and discover something wonderful. That's right. So keep looking up. Keep looking up. Good heavens. We will talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.